This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 11th of September 2021 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Today marks 20 years since the 9-11 attacks and Monocle's news editor, Chris Chermack, joins me in the studio to look more closely at that and also to go through the other headlines in today's papers. Plus... The snipped views you get of these inner sanctums as you walk the streets are the architectural equivalent of the rolled trouser cuff a bit of ankle on display. We'll hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. So, that's what's ahead on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Do stay with us. First, though, here's the news. Lebanese leaders agreed a new government led by Sunni Muslim tycoon Najib Makati on Friday after a year of squabbling over cabinet seats that's exacerbated a devastating economic collapse, opening the way to a resumption of talks with the IMF. Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, facing possible defeat in a snap September the 20th election, has defended his decision to call the election early and said his main rival would undermine the fight against COVID-19. And the Kremlin's crackdown on websites linked to jailed opposition politician Alexei Navalny and on technology used to evade online bans are causing major internet outages for the Russian public. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, now, of course, not in the headlines because it's hardly breaking, but a story that's picked up on every single newspaper, I guess, across the planet is that 20 years ago, we saw the horrific atrocity on the Twin Towers, uh, which, of course, we've come to know as 9-11. And to have a look at uh, all of this with me is our news editor, Chris Chermack. Good morning to you, Chris. Good morning, Georgina. Good to be here. Uh, this is the first time you've done. We've done this show live together, isn't it? This is the first time we've done the show live together. I think I appeared once ages ago uh, when I first almost started at Monocle, almost a year and a half ago, okay. uh, briefly. But this is the first time we're doing a proper show in studio. So well, nice, welcome to, nice our, to be here. Yeah, welcome to our early morning Saturday club. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I'm very excited. I have had a first coffee just to get myself and a cycle right in, just to kind of wake myself up and and be ready. So I'm feeling chipper enough, I should say. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Chris, today, of course, the world looks back at 9-11. In the foreign desk a little bit later, Andrew Muller will be looking at the legacy of that. Uh, and indeed, most of the newspapers pick up on that too, particularly in light of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the absolute chaos that's caused in that, in that country. Uh, tell me what you're uh, be- being particularly struck by in the coverage of the anniversary. You know, it's it's interesting. I mean, there's there's so much coverage, of course, also in the run up uh, to today and and through the day today. What strikes me really, I think, is the the difference within newspapers and what they say about not only the newspaper but the stance, if you will, the the, the thoughts that different countries have when they reflect back on this. You know, I started with. Uh, the New York Post, uh, which, which of course, has very much just that, that sort of New York story. It has, you know, its front pages, the heroes of 9-11 and long after, and it's telling you about both the people in New York, the firefighters, the emergency responders who sort of helped 
protect us on that day and then also goes into the military and the soldiers and sort of what happened in the day after. So it's a, it's a personal, um, sort of very patriotic American take, if you will, uh, from the side of New York. And then at the same time, for example, you go to, to Washington, D.C., the Washington Post, uh, has a very political story, but very interesting story that really charts Joe Biden's course um, over the last 20 years, uh, essentially, it says on the anniversary of Joe Biden or on anniversary, Joe Biden finds closing the book on 9-11 fraught with perils and uncertainty. And it talks about how he was, you know, he was head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee at the time of the attacks. He played a key role at that moment in actually being an advocate for war, for supporting the war in Afghanistan, for that matter, even I Iraq uh, at the beginning. And and then slowly, you know, his skepticism sort of sort of started to to ring truer as he then became vice president, of course, under Barack Obama. He was actually quite skeptical of the attack on Osama bin Laden, for example. And then now, kind of coming full course twenty years later, to be the the one who, of course, uh, took us out of Afghanistan. So he's had quite an interesting change of heart, if you will. That that really also, and the Washington Post talks about this charts the same almost change of heart that the country has had, arguably, as well in how that it's looked at the war on terror uh, and 9-11 and in its aftermath. And then maybe to, to go to other countries, I, I found it quite interesting to look at, for example, Le Monde in France. It has a story that really talks about 9-11 and the era of surveillance that it ushered in democracies around the world and focuses on the revelations of, of Edward Snowden and, and the NSA scandal and, and aspects of that and how technology, of course, with the advent of the Internet as well, kind of dovetailed with this new environment that we've then come come to know uh you know so many of us would would remember you know the difference before pre 911 both in surveillance but also you know I've spoken to people of course this week about the difference in say airports and how you travel all these things that have changed so so dramatically over the last uh 20 you know 20 years and then finally uh I can say I also looked at uh there is an interesting story in the Japan Times uh, for example, which had a completely different take. It was written by a Japanese diplomat who focused on how 9-11 perhaps distracted the U.S. from China and the, 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 the threat or the rivalry that, that, that China posed at the time. And it talked about how, you know, China was uh, perhaps in part because of the war on terror and the focus on the Middle East, there wasn't really a desire to to challenge China during its rise, and it was seen instead as, as, as a country that had to be worked with, was welcomed into the World Trade Organization. All of this, you could also, of course, argue made, made sense at the time. We didn't necessarily know what what China would become, what kind of rival uh, it would become. But it was interesting to see that sort of dynamic playing out in, in the Japanese papers to say, well, if it hadn't been for 9-11, perhaps we might have recognized a threat from China in a different way earlier on. How interesting. Uh, Chris, do you have a, a strong personal memories of the time? I, I have very strong personal memories, yes. I mean, I've, I've, I uh, did a little uh, snippet about this for Tall Stories for the Urbanist podcast as well, because my, my mother is from New York, is, is from Brooklyn, uh, grew up in, or born in Brooklyn, grew up on Long Island. So I have a personal connection. I was in uh, New York about two weeks before the attacks, and I just remember all of us remarking on sort of sitting by the South Street Seaport and just seeing the Twin Towers and how 
ever-present they were, uh, you know, throughout the city. Um, and then on the day, uh, it, it also has been very formative, actually, for my career, because on on the day of the attacks, I was actually in my first ever newspaper internship at the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung in Brussels, and I was, I was at a hearing at the European Parliament with, with Richard Branson, of, of all things. But I remember very well the fact that they spoke there about this worry. They continued the hearing at the moment that the attacks happened. They announced it in the hearing room that the Twin Towers had fallen, but they continued the hearing saying they did not believe that an attack on one country meant there would be an attack on another institution. Um, I, of course, still left the he the hearing room, and I just remember being struck. Uh, I've heard other people talk about this, of course, too, but it was in the days before, really, cell phones and, and, and Internet. So I just remember hearing somebody in the corridors say that they were hijacking planes and, and crashing them into buildings. And I didn't, you know, you just didn't really know what to make of that until I got back to the office uh, of the Frankfurt Allgemeine. Uh, and saw, you know, saw the images on television and then was there in Brussels for sort of the European response, the European Council, the meetings that, that took place, the European leaders. This was, of course, the first time also that NATO invoked Article 5 of its charter. So it was an interesting, of course, uh, time to be there. And then throughout also my career, then I went to Washington, D.C. I worked for, for DPA, the, the Newswire. Um, and I was thrown in. One of my first things that I covered was the trial of Zacharias Musawi, who was sort of known as, as the 20th hijacker. He was one who did not board, but he was the only person really tried for 9-11. And that sort of trial was very moving with, with witnesses talking about the day, images of the day. Rudy Giuliani, uh, the mayor at the time, gave testimony there as well. And then I've just I've been back many times to New York, uh, you know, did a piece on the 10th anniversary, uh, so 10 years ago on on 9/11, where it was really interesting to see. At the time, there wasn't much there at the site of Ground Zero, but there were these tours that were being done by people who had been affected, whether it was emergency responders or family members uh, of of victims of the attacks who who really found it sort of cathartic, I think, to give these tours of the site and talk about their memories of the day. Mm. And that, that always really, you know, struck me as well. So it's always been just a place that's very close to my, my heart uh, for that day and also the, the aftermath of it. But. Sure. It was life-changing for me and career-altering. I was in Zimbabwe and we I had just, um, we just won a court case saying that it was unconstitutional for the government there to have a monopoly on uh, broadcasting um, and so I, and I worked for the state broadcaster so I had to resign on air and, and uh, that night we set up a, a, a radio station uh, which the Zimbabwean government closed down a week later they um, you know, it was horribly violent and it, just, it was nasty and then we applied for funding to set up a shortwave station uh, that would be in Britain um, and the day that the funding uh, came through uh, was the 11th of September and we went in to discuss the funding uh, to the American embassy which was one of a huge partnership of people that was sort of all putting in money to start this thing and everybody was transfixed on the television screen and basically I think that the funding for our station here in London, our shortwave station in London was kind of nodded through because people were just watching the Twin Towers fall as we did it and less than a month later I was here in Britain and I've never lived in Zimbabwe again so it's all kind of linked 
to to that day it was quite quite extraordinary that that is quite extraordinary to have that kind of link with the, with with the day but in a tangential way almost but yeah, it's yeah that's, kind of that's very kind of bizarre now of course much of the focus of the anniversary does tend to be in new york uh, um but you've made this piece about the pentagon tell us more I, I have made a piece about the Pentagon. So, I mean, there is something unique about the site of, of the Pentagon as well, just outside of Washington, D.C. 189 people were killed there when a, a plane crashed into the side of that building 20 years ago. And today there is a very simple but also very moving memorial on the site of, of trees, benches, and water for each of those 189 lives uh, that were lost and that memorial is in large part thanks to Jim Lechek. He's executive director of the Pentagon's Memorial Fund. Um, and Lechek lost his brother, uh, David, in the attacks. And he spoke to me uh, earlier about his memories, really, about of that day, about the memorial that he helped to create, and also about his current quest to build a museum, an, an education center on the site to help a new generation to remember those days. Dave had, had just moved back to the area from um, Arizona. Now, he's a civilian working for the Department of the Army, so he's part of the civil service force of government workers. So they had moved back here only, I think, I, I want to say nine, ten months before, so it was like the previous summer. And, and we were glad he was around because we grew up around here, and I have another brother and another sister, and my dad was still alive at the time. My mom had passed away a while. So we were all glad to have him home, but you know, you get busy with summer. So I didn't see him since like, I think April before at my dad's birthday party when, you know, we were all, all together, but it's not unusual. We have kids, they have kids. You just get busy with summer activities. So my brother, Dave, my dad, and my brother, Mike, and my uncle, Jim, all had reason to be at the, at the Pentagon. So anyway, we're watching TV and all of a sudden we felt the, the windows of our house vibrate. And um, I don't know if I said it or my wife said it or, or I, we might have said, well, I wonder if that was the Pentagon. And then somebody came on the news, I think it was Jim Miklaszewski from NBC, said, you know, he was the Pentagon reporter for them. And he said, uh, the Pentagon's been hit. Later, you know, we found out that, I think through my brother, Mike, and my dad, that the plane came through where Dave's office was. So we thought he was in the, and he might have just moved back to that office because What's fortunate for the Pentagon attack, or they, I don't know if they call it the Pentagon miracle or, or whatever, is that where the plane hit, it was near a section where offices had just been evacuated because they're going to renovate, and people were still moving in because they had just finished the renovation. So if that plane had hit any other part of the, the building, you probably would have had more people die in the Pentagon than in New York City because of how densely pack that office uh, space is. I can remember the day they, they started talking about, they kept talking about it being a recovery mission the first day or two, but after about maybe the third day, he made the general that uh, John Van Alstine, who was leading the briefings every day, and it was just for family members, no press. But he said, you know, it's not a rescue mission anymore, it's a recovery mission. And that was, his way of saying, and I don't know if everybody grasped it right away, but it, you, you realize that 
Yeah, there. No one's. If 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 our loved ones haven't come out by now, they're they're not coming out. I think military families are probably more used to events like that, right? Because you know, you could die in a fighter plane accident or a training accident. You know, you could go into harm's way. In different places, Dad served in Vietnam. He he served occupation duty in Korea after the Korean War. There's always a chance that something could happen. They mourn. Military funerals are some of the best. You know, they're very. <laughs> I'm tearing up just thinking about it now. But they're they're they um, provide a lot of healing for the family. So they kind of do things that way, or they understand how to embrace. Um, Oh, one one example is they have something called a casualty assistance officer. So anytime a military person dies in a training accident or an event like this or in a war, they're assigned someone to the spouse to help them get through everything. It's an example of the military knows how to embrace, you know, tragedy and the surviving families in a way to provide support and help them through it. You know, we started out with a family statement, say, here's what we wanted, and and uh, there's a couple other family members. There are nine of us in total that were on the steering committee for the design. So it was that idea of, you know, I remember Elaine Donovan and Wendy Chamberlain, now Wendy or Wendy Ploger, um, helped write that statement. And at the end is, you know, help us turn this horrible tragedy into a place of solace, peace, and healing. So I think seeing how people interpreted that and, and talked about it. And I think what Keith and Julie came up with, the water and the benches and the trees and a place, you know, kind of of solitude where you could just go and sit and be there. And it starts with the youngest, goes to the oldest. There's a directionality to each bench. So it's an individual memorial. It's a collective memorial that kind of reminds you of what happened that day because the age lines are oriented to the flight path of the plane, you know, into the building. There's a whole generation that's growing up that has no memory of 9-11 like we had of 9-11. They don't remember all the things that happened after it. They don't remember how we all felt, the sense of unity. So I think that's an important story to be, be told. That whole generation of understanding everything we just talked about, some of the stories, how do military families react to things? And there's a lot of first-person accounts that we get. So it's a way to kind of tell a story about about what happened that day and think about how we responded and how we continue to respond. I mean, one of the things about our visitor center is we focus on 9-11 and then what happened after it. So I think it's an opportunity to always be relevant because we're still dealing with terrorism and these issues today. A lot of it is the importance of that building or the symbol of that building. And the fact that it's not just military people that work there, there's civilians that work there. You know, military people sign up, you know, and understand that they may be going into harm's way. Civilians don't necessarily sign up for that same mission. So, and I think there's some history to it. It's, um, you know, and about our, our nation's military and how the military's changed as a result how they think about things differently as a result of 9-11. I think they went through a transformation process. Our country went through a transformation process. And there's a reason why all this happens. I, I, I think it's important to 
we have an opportunity because it's right there, right where it happened to kind of tell a lot of these stories and evolve as things evolve. Because like I said, we're not talking about, you know, the lead up to 9-11, you know, like um, like New York focuses on the previous Al-Qaeda attacks, the growth of Al-Qaeda and then what happened. Pennsylvania focuses on what happened that day, you know, with those people voting to decide to storm the plane. I mean, it's like a mini democracy in action. There's a great story there. Ours is about, you know, the event that happened. And then we talk about how did we respond or how will you respond? How will you remember? So it's it's about response. That was Jim Lechuk, executive director of the Pentagon Memorial Fund. Very moving piece there, Chris, that you made with him. Yes, it was very moving to to speak with him and and sort of walk him through a little bit his memories uh, of that day, but but also the the sort of positive story about what came out of that. He he also talked about actually to me about how he just felt like he was the person given his background to set up this memorial and and work through the funding. And so in that sense, it's really changed his life and his focus uh, over the years. And and now also for this education center that he hopes will be built by about 2025 to really tell the story of the Pentagon. And as he said at the end there, the the response, uh, if you will, the sort of what happened afterwards. And that's something that very much, you know, the Pentagon, of course, tells. Mm, Of course. Now, one of the things that comes out of 9-11, of course, is the uh, radicalization, if you like, of Islam and the way that uh, the terrorists used this kind of mask of religion to, to... to talk about what it was that they were doing. And of course, we know that Islam is not inherently a violent religion. These are people just using it for their own purposes. And somebody who's very, very good on that is Safraz Manzor. Now, he's just written a fantastic book called They, uh, and it's subtitled What um, uh, White British and Muslim People Get Wrong About Each Other. Uh, And he kind of goes through all of that, looking at terrorism, for instance, how extremists use uh, really subverting quotes from the Quran to justify what they do. Uh, and uh, really, he goes into many, many aspects of of what what the two religions, or indeed non-religions, get, get wrong and write about each other. Uh, and there's an interview you can hear on uh, Meet the Writers in Our Archives with Safraz. And indeed, if you're in London today, he'll be speaking to me at the Chiswick Book Festival uh, this afternoon, I think, just after one o'clock and that uh, taking place actually almost to the hour when the attacks actually happened. Now the one great upside of that is of course we're back in person. This is an in-person event in front of an audience and I think we're all very relieved to be in that position finally. Not least our editor-in-chief Andrew Tuck who's not just been out and about but has actually been further afield. Milan couldn't have looked more beguiling this week, or come to mention it, is residents either. The sun shone on a city that over the years has become expert at hosting people, especially when there's a fashion week or the famous furniture fair Salone del Mobile in action. But Milan's hosting skills have been underused of late. Its party outfits have spent far too much time hanging in the wardrobe. However, after delays, formats rethought, and some angst along the Covid way, this week the city welcomed back the crowds for Salone. Usually held in April, 
the shift came with an extra dividend, a full-on blast of glorious late summer that made everywhere look head-turningly handsome. Milan is one of those cities that rewards you with intriguing glimpses. Raise your eyes and you see hints of vast private gardens atop grand apartment buildings, hidden realms. And then there are Milan's courtyards. The snipped views you get of these inner sanctums as you walk the streets are the architectural equivalent of the rolled trouser cuff, a bit of ankle on display. And on that topic, do you think there's a module in Italian schools where young men get instructed in the fine art of the trouser roll? I wonder if they enrol foreigners. The other thing that made the timing so good was that after an August spent at the beach, everyone seemed to have that just-back-from-holiday glow. There's nothing like a few days in Milan to make you think that you need to up your game or wish that you had some Italian heritage. Look, I promise that the flaneuring was not the only thing that I got up to. First off, in partnership with USM Haller, we had a pop-up radio studio, coffee stand, and space to pause and read our great Saloni newspaper at the Rossignoli bicycle shop. USM used its modular furnishing system to build everything from seating to our radio cart, and it all looked super cute. And the bicycle shop carried on with its business all around us. Every few minutes, someone would pull up to use the free compressed air unit to refill their droopy tires. Nuns, kids, all pausing to get pumped up. And after all these months when certain people said that they would never travel for business again, that Zoom was all they needed, well, Milan showed you what you miss out on by sticking to that line. Everyone you spoke to told you about something that you needed to see, shared plans being hatched. People were high on each other and Barbasso Aperol spritzes. This need to come together in the real world was one of the topics that got picked up on during two panel debates that we held in conjunction with the Swiss kitchen appliances maker, Falzug. But before we even opened our mouths, the venue had won people over. The dinky Teatro Gerolamo. It looks like you've put a favourite opera house on a hot wash by mistake, and it's come out a tenth of its right size. Although, hearing how clever those Valzug machines are, I'm sure that that would never happen in their world. The ditty scale of the venue is because it was designed for puppet shows, and so it was nicely packed with an audience of 70. Perhaps one of the most interesting threads in the conversations that we had on stage was the idea of using and making less. Joseph Griemer is an architect who wants to build less. He's also the creative director of Design Academy Eindhoven, where he challenges his students to do the same. Mirko Kuhlberg runs Glasshouse Helsinki and explained how she's spent time creating a whole manifesto around sustainability for her company before rushing to make products. But you do get flawed at these events. On the second evening, we were joined by Kamal Muzawach, a social entrepreneur from Lebanon who now finds himself in Paris, displaced from Beirut after the blast. He explained how his country is dealing with insane levels of corruption and just a few hours of electricity a day. It's at moments like this that you realise that telling some people to use less energy, to live simple lives, can make you sound very privileged. Look, 
It was just a few days in an embracing city, surrounded by people keen to share ideas, show you things of beauty, question how we live. And the best bit? They're doing it all over again in April. Really, you should come. Thank you very much to Andrew, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck there. And still with me is Chris Chamak, who is our news editor. Chris, that's not the only thing that Monocle's been getting up to, of course. Absolutely not. I mean, it's been such a busy week. Uh, listeners will know this from from our shows. We've we've kind of gotten out over the past week in a way that I feel like we, we hadn't been able to do, frankly, that much uh, beforehand. We were at the... IAA Mobility uh, Fair in uh, Munich this week, which was which was an interesting, uh, you know, event not only about cars but also about mobility in general. And we talked to, with with quite a few people there about the shift, um, you know, this this mobility shift not just to cars but to bikes, electric vehicles, everything else that that comes into this shift. We were also at MIPIM, a real estate fair. Our Ed Stalker was there earlier this week as well. And it also just it continues uh, in the coming week, uh, to be honest. Uh, Noah Giles, who was leading our team uh, in Salone that Andrew talked about there, he's also at the Maison et Objet, uh, the biannual homewares fair in Paris. Then there's design fairs coming up again in Copenhagen and other places. So really, we're just kind of out on the road again, reporting from fairs and, and different events, networking. Working and it's just it's just nice to be out there again. And finally, of course, there's our quality of life conference. And exactly, there will be our quality of life conference at the end of this month in Athens. Uh, so I would yes recommend anybody who wants to could still sign up to to go to that. It's uh, it's going to be interesting. We we weren't able to do that last year, but we will be able to do that again this year as well. We're very much looking forward to that. Absolutely, Chris. Thank you very much indeed. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer, Steph Chungu. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week. Thank you for listening.